Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. Yesterday, I had a problem on my phone. I have a Galaxy 5. And every time I've gone to the T-Mobile in Burbank, the service has been great. And it was just this weird thing kept summing up with my uh, SD card. And I went in and the guy was the most obnoxious, condescending person trying to tell me that my phone that doesn't come with a SD card or whatever it's called. I'm like, no, I bought the phone. I know. And I was really upset about customer service. And I was pissed. So if you go to this guy, his name's JD at, uh, at, the, at the Burbank store right under San Fernando T-Mobile. He's a jerk. But then just when I thought my day was going to get worse because I had to call AT&T because they jumped my phone, my cable bill from $120 to $205. I called and I got this guy on the phone and his name was uh, Pat and he was out of St. Louis and he was the nicest guy and he worked with me and he got my bill down. So you know what? Every time there's a jerk in customer service, there's always a good person. So just remember that when you go out. Okay. So we have a great show today. Uh, we have a very uh, talented actress, uh, you do a bunch of stuff. Claudia Christian. How you doing, Claudia? Hey, I'm good. Yes, Steve, I'm sort of the ultimate hyphen. You've, you've, you've sang? I mean, I've, you've done a lot I've of things. I've made documentaries. I run a nonprofit for people with alcohol use disorder. I'm an advocate for the Sinclair Method, a treatment for alcoholism. I uh, have written books. I've got another book coming out next summer. Um, I cook. <laughs> I'm doing a cooking show currently. I, yes, I've made albums. Um Write written music. Uh, gosh, what else? I made a documentary film last year, two years ago. Now, what did you want to do as a kid? I mean, you've worn so many hats, but as a little... <sighs> no, you were born in Glendale, but then you grew up in Connecticut, I think? Yeah, I was born actually right around here. Um, but when I was a baby, we moved to Connecticut. And um, I got bitten by the acting bug when I was about, I don't know, five, six years old. I did a play, and, and it was the first time in my life that anybody actually shut up and listened to me because I had three older brothers growing up. So for me, it was um, it was a very telling moment. Uh, I liked that feeling of performing, and I really enjoyed it. I loved writing. I was I wrote my first book, I think, when I was about the same age. So, you know, The Adventures of Henry the Mouse, huge hit in my house. <laughs> um, but it was, you know... I liked all creative stuff. I really didn't care for school very much. I wanted to be an adult as soon as possible. So I legally changed my name to my mother's last name when I was 15 because I thought it sounded better on TV. Okay, so so you, <laughs> you decided that when you're – but you already knew at 15. You said – uh, you my, knew when you were young. You said, this is what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. I, my, not, when, yeah, when my dad got transferred – he was with Shell Oil Company. He got transferred from uh, Connecticut to California. I was convinced it was because I had to be – I was going to be on TV. That was the reason why we were moving. <laughs> well, there you go. But at least, but see, at least you knew what you wanted. A lot of kids don't know what they want, and a lot of kids stray from that. You knew exactly what you wanted, mm. so you move out here. Yes. Back here, you're 15. Left high school early at 16. Got a manager in Los Angeles. Um, snuck out with my mom's car a few times behind their backs to drive to LA from Orange County because I went to Laguna Beach High School, and um, I had four jobs in order to raise enough money to move out by the time I was 16 and a half. Now, what did your, were your parents supportive of you? Did yeah. they, they said, okay, did they see the talent? Cause you think about it sometimes, like if, if you're a parent mm. and your kid wants to be an actor and you say no way and, or, <laughs> but if, if your kid wants to be an actor and you're supportive, but the kid's just not good, mm. you know, when I sit there and say, you know, but they must've saw something in you and said, you know, to let you take the jump. I had a full scholarship from Laguna Beach High School, a drama scholarship, okay. which I never used because I did not want to go to college. I was very matter of fact about it. I told them, I said, if I go to college, I'm wasting four of the best money-making years of my life. I'm not going to be able to work technically until I'm 18 because I look so old. I was my full height of 5'9". I had a very deep voice at the age of 14. So What is that like? I mean, because it's, it's like, really weird. Like five, that's such a, it's tall. And now, and it's weird, now women, like seems like women, younger girls are taller than mm -hmm. they used to be. Like when, when I was younger, I, there was no like five no. foot nine girls in my class. I no, mean, I was, we, we were the Amazon chicks. Okay. We were all swimmers and basketball players and there was about four of us in the entire school. I reached my full height very young. And, um, you know, it was it, it was hard because I got a great manager. She handled Heather Locklear, and she loved me and everything. But she said to me, point blank, you're not going to be able to work until you're 18 because you look older. So why would they hire a 16 or 17-year-old to play six to, you know, the, you have to play, be 18 to play 16, in other words. So funny enough, uh, you know, my first job, I, I got hired on Dallas as a college student. My parents were, my parents were, um, 
my mother was very supportive because she knew I was talented and she knew that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I had two brothers who were the same way. One wanted to be a veterinarian from a very young age and the other one definitely was going to go into science. They they encouraged me to go into medicine, but I just, I just did not like school. I really wasn't uh, made for that. So... My mom was very supportive. My father was scared for me. You know, it's not a, he wanted me to have a backup career. Right. And, and I tried to explain to him that if I don't try it now when I'm young and, and, and bankable, it's not going to work. And lucky for me, I moved to Los Angeles and I studied with some people, some acting coaches, and I made the rounds to casting directors. So you were smart. You actually, you went and said you weren't like some kids just move out here and think, oh, I'm going to be acting. You sat there and said, I'm going to study. I'm mm-hmm. going to treat this like a business. Yeah, it was a business. I studied with all the top acting coaches from Larry Moss to, I mean, you, you name it, everybody, uh, Milton Kutselis, um And I basically took all the photos, I had everything in place, I had headshots, I had an agent, I had a manager, I had everything. So by the time I literally turned 18, all they did is pick up the phone and called a couple casting directors and said, remember that girl you met that you liked? Can you get, throw her a, a five and under line so she can get in the union? And that's how I got in the union. I got Taft-Hartley by Irene Mariano, bless her, at NBC. Um, she just, uh, I met with her at NBC Lorimar, what used to be Lorimar, and she put me on an episode of Dallas, and that's how I started. That must have been awesome. I mean, it's, I mean, you're, my first job. Yeah, I thought I thought craft service was always going to be caviar and lobster after that. <laughs> <laughs> was it that great? Because I always it was ridiculous. Well, you know, it's funny, and, and it's I've had people that have been on different shows that you know back then Dallas was such a big show, and back then there was only three networks. Networks. So ABC, CBS, NBC. Yeah. Even if your show stunk, you were still getting seen by a lot of people. But Hell Dallas yeah. was so popular. Did so, I guess they put a lot of money into that. They put a ton of money into it. Larry Hagman directed the episode that I did, so I showed up and I was completely in a surreal world. He was wearing lederhosen and he was just he was just nuts and everybody was so glamorous and famous and I'm telling you, the lunch literally was like steak and lobster. And I thought, Wow, this is this is this is the way Hollywood is 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 going to be for the rest of my career you know smash cut to 20 years later and i'm in hoboken with a, a celery stick and 40 degree below weather <laughs> with no dressing room right there there's the real hollywood um no it was it was a great start and of course as you said there were some few networks so once you became an nbc gal or a cbs gal you worked on every one of their shows once i did a stephen cannell show i was in every one okay, of them okay so they did that they if they liked yeah. you they would oh, put yeah. you because i even like i mean back when nbc used to do with seinfeld you would see a lot of people to do guest spots on seinfeld then they get a they get a role so they would sit there you would come on let's say dallas mm-hmm. and then they say okay falcon crest okay so they'll say yeah. and then they're gonna go okay we're gonna put her and now were you allowed to go to work other networks or were they very oh strict oh that? yeah no the second i did a team i did riptide and then i did matlock and then of course when you do you know it, and then i got a series at lorimar because i had already done some stuff you know so it was it was definitely nbc was my niche for a few years i then did black's magic with howland and i was 19 playing probably about 30 in that one <laughs> Now that that's got to be weird because you know it's 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 must be weird because you're still 19. I mean that's always think when people play mm-hmm. older, you're still that age, and it's I always think about pro basketball players when they get drafted and they're like 18 or 19, yeah. and then they're going and they're playing with guys who are 26 or 27, and it's a big difference. I mean for you it must have been weird because you're playing someone who's 30 and. Between 19 and 23, there's a big difference. Between 19 and 30, it's two worlds of difference. I mean, how did you did you use your training to pull that role off, or how'd you do that? You know, it's funny because I was playing Hal Linden's daughter, and um, I was married to a guy in the show who was a cop, and he had so I was a step I think I was stepmother to a nine year old and a ten year old or something like that, and I was thinking to myself. You know, but it, but it, it it's interesting because I my parents always say I was I was a 40 year old trapped in a 15 year old's body. I really was. I had a bank account young. I had jobs at the age of 12. I was modeling. I was working in a cappuccino bar. I told my I went down to my guidance counselor at Laguna High and I just told her I said, "You got to get me out of here. How am I going to do it? How am I going to make enough points?" And she looked at me and she said, "I don't. I've never done this before. I'm getting you out of here. You don't belong here." And I was I was just a mini adult. I I started driving at 15, you know, illegally, I started driving up to LA, you know, I was, I wanted my own place, I wanted to pay my own bills, I just wanted to get on with life, I didn't, in, I, you know, I tried all that cheerleading stuff in high school crap, but I just, you know, you like I it. just didn't appeal to me, I just felt like I was pretending to be a kid. So you're, you're doing these acting, you're, you're, you're getting a lot of work, mm-hmm. okay, and then you've got the part in the series, 
and now are you do you do you want to turn to movies now or are you happy with doing tv or because back then there was a big difference mm-hmm. yeah when i got my first film the hidden um which, which was yeah. i love by the way <laughs> and actually in uh, dirty dead comment peter's watching that in the i one know scene. that's so I was, funny i was cracking I, up that was so funny <laughs> when he was watching that i saw the i went to the screening of dirty dog dead con men and uh i didn't see you there i wait the one in Beverly Hills? No, the one okay. the one in Hollywood that okay. they had a while back, yeah. Um, and, uh, well, my friend Patty Healy got me on, into that project. When, when, it, when I saw what they did with The Hidden, I was cracking up. It was a sort of seminal film because it was ahead of its time, and, and it certainly has become a cult film. And for me, um, I replaced somebody rather last minute, and it was really my first feature, and it was a studio pick, and it was exciting, and... I did have a conversation with my agent because just after that I got clean and sober with Michael Keaton and Morgan Freeman and I thought, you know, wow, I'm I'm on my on a roll of two studio pictures in a row and you know, I had done some other independent films with Adam Rifkin, I had done a bunch of stuff with the Brat Pack, you know, all these films like Never on Tuesday and The Dark Backward and The Chase with Charlie Sheen and all that. The Dark Backward. I'm yeah, Judd Nelson playing that a three armed comedian. <laughs> that is one of I used to weirdest me and a buddy film. Of mine used to watch that. And yeah. a guy used to I used to stand up stoned. comedy. And I used to stand so we were watching it and I said you have you seen this movie called The Dark Backward and he goes no and it was the most bizarre, bizarre and film. Bill Paxson loving the big heavy women James Caan and yeah and we're sitting there and Wayne Newton I mean, it was it was like the and most that was a nice kitty Rob Lowe too yeah it was like I was watching that and it was one of those movies I loved it I yeah, mean, it was weird, but, weird but you can't find it anywhere which yeah. is such a good movie and I'm like it was yeah. So. Well, try and find Tale of Two Sisters. That's okay. the one I did with Jeff Conaway and uh, Charlie Sheen did all the poetry that was. Uh, Adam Rifkin has made some very strange films in his life, and I've I've done all a lot of them. Um, How did you get involved with 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 him? Did you did he like your work and just say I'm gonna start putting you in movies, just like with NBC where they say we're gonna put you in movies? Well, or? I went up for uh, his first film called Never on Tuesday, and they really wanted a name, and he fought for me. He really thought I was Tuesday, this this character, and it was actually Pete Berg, who's now a big famous director producer, mm-hmm. and uh, Andrew Lauer, who's a wonderful actor. And um, I played Tuesday, this lesbian photographer who gets in a car accident in the middle of a desert with two guys that are horn dogs, and we end up being friends. And it's this really sweet coming of age kind of story. And after Never on Tuesday, he just kept putting me in stuff. You know, um, I always joke that, you know, he didn't put me in his two biggest films, but I, but I, but I did all of his first films. He put me in the chase. I played Christy Swanson's stepmother in that one. Um, but, uh, yeah. Which once again is the age thing because you're the, I know the same I, I was I was yeah, exactly that's, that's like, wait a second it's like I always cry I, I always think it's like, like when you watch the show Good Times uh, you know like John Amos is the father is like eight years older than Jimmy Walker uh, and Esther Roll is like. 35 years older than John Amos. And I'm like, I'm like this is just weird because yeah. the way it's cast, there's no way that he could well, be the father. Colin Farrell and Angelina Jolie. Right. She played his mother. Right. I mean, what was she, a, a fetus when she had him? Yeah, it's, it's, the whole age thing is strange because, you know, it, it sounds like such a cliche, but now that I'm 49, I really, I, I feel, I don't feel like I've, I'm, I'm some sort of, going into character actress or middle-aged or anything like that it it feels like life has begun and that all of those years those 32 years in the industry thus far has really been a preparation for making who you me who I am now which is which is you know far more secure I'm, I'm not waiting for the next audition I have other stuff going on in my life I mean it's it was a really great and is a great career and I I've I've been incredible I'm incredibly grateful for it's taken me around the world and all the shows I've done and films I've done and the people I've met but it's a very selfish career in a way it, it does get to you after a while that and it's also a very there's a shallowness about it because you're really basing all of your identity on whether or not you have a job or, right. or this and there's all that insecurity and until you diversify I think it's really hard to find your niche because unless you're working all the time and you've reached a certain level I got kind of bored with not being in control of my destiny I think that's what it is and I and I really got to the point where I thought how long can I be in a career where I'm not in control of my destiny it's not up to me if I get the job even how good I am if I've memorized it if I kick butt in that audition I could look like the director's ex-wife I always say that to yeah. people it's like it's a yeah it's something it's I was talking to a guy at a party the other day he's, he has like this rock and roll look and we we're talking about and he's, he's in a band and he goes I didn't get this part and he uh he goes I'm 
the guy goes to me, you're the only musician, right? He goes, yeah. He goes, I thought I nailed it. And I go, you know what? Probably someone else said, oh, my God, that looks like some guy who broke my heart in high school. And that's what makes it sad sometimes because they don't always look at the talent. And it's like anything. In any other job, you can't do that. Like, I can't sit there. If, if you know, if I go to a restaurant and if I sit there and there's a waitress that looks like a girl who broke my heart. It doesn't I can't, matter. You can't say, yeah. can I have another waitress? Exactly. <laughs> and I just, I, I, and you can't give her a bad tip because then it's just mean. Well, yeah, exactly. But in Hollywood, that's what's crazy is, and you're right. It's like you sit there and you're not in control of your destiny. And I mean, you had, you know, you're working all the time, but you're right. If you go into an audition and someone sat there and went, yeah, you know what? She just, she reminds me of when I was in fourth grade, I had this teacher who yelled at me. Yeah. And you know what? The, the I, I remember very, the one very specific, I used to drive a motorcycle because um it was just, I always drove a motorcycle when I was in LA at some point I didn't even have a car. And I, I remember this one incident. I went to an audition and it was for a very soft feminine role and I went on my motorcycle, but I had a dress, a white dress and the whole thing and little sandals and my hair down. And I took off my helmet and everything and I put it in the waiting room with a little thing over it, you know, my jacket over it. My, And I had, I, I looked exactly like the part. I went in and I did this wonderful audition and I came out and later on my agent said to me, you know, you had that part until they saw you walk out with a motorcycle helmet. I mean, I'm like, that's, You've got to be kidding me. They said that the character never would drive a motorcycle. Yeah, and I thought, what, that, I thought, I'm an actress. Exactly. You're, def, you're defeating the whole part. You're just denying the entire exactly. part of the acting thing. If I'm playing heroin addict, do I have to go do heroin? Exactly. No. I mean, I've played pregnant. I've never had a kid. I mean, I've played junkies. I've never done drugs like that. I mean, I'm like, really? That was so stupid and narrow-minded. And, and that is, that's what's so crazy about it. It's just ridiculous. It's just because, and yeah, you sit there and go, exactly. It's like, or they you're, you're an actress. ethnic person. Or they, I, I went up for The Mentalist, for example, 13 times. And for the role, I was up against men. I was up against ethnic gals. I was up against big gals, little gals, short, tall, overweight, skinny. What, every Indian, black, Asian, you name it. And... Lo and behold, I finally, after the 13th audition, I'm, I'm, I, I've auditioned over the years, literally 13 times. I counted. And, and I ran into the casting director and I said, you know what? You guys know I can act. I mean, I've gone up for senators, cops, wives, arm pieces. I mean, you, this is 13 times. And he was shocked. He said, have you really read 13 times? And I said, yeah, and I'm kind of sick of it. Yeah. And, and he, and he, and he, they offered me a role like a week later, and I was so chuffed about that. I thought, wow, that's really classy. That happened. And he's, yeah, yeah, he said, you know, it's not that we knew you could act. We just never found the right thing, or we wanted to put another, you know, like ethnicity in there. Or they know? wanted to roll it would fit you perfectly. But No, this didn't fit me perfectly. It was like play? a Texan jeweler. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just, but it was a guest lead, and I said, hell yeah, I'll do it. I'd do anything, you know. I mean, it was just a very classy thing for him to do, but I think they don't realize that you're on a list and you just keep coming in and you and what now back in the day when I started in the eighties, they were, I always laugh when I run into actresses like Daphne Zuniga or any of these girls, because it was literally, she was the blonde, I was the brunette and we were all the same age and we went up for the same roles and they would go with one redhead, one brunette, right. one blonde, whatever. And we were all, there was like eight of us. Now there's 8,000 of us. I never went up against another race. I never went up against the opposite sex. Now I walk in and literally, if I, it's a, it, it'll, it won't even say male or female. It'll say psychiatrist. And you'll have maybe three scenes in some big show, right? Criminal Minds or something. And I'm looking around. There's like four guys and they range from age from 25 to right. 60. And, and it's me. And I'm the only chick, you know? And, uh, what the, I mean, wow. That, no, that sometimes that, that gives you the advantage, but yeah, it is weird because they sit there and there is so many people now, and there yeah. and there's so many. And the funny thing is, there's so many people and there's so many roles, and, and they're still doing. You think they would sit there and be direct, like you know, say, okay, here's what we need, and because you would think when you write something, you know, as a writer and you write, and I've written before, when you sit there and you write, you have something in mind, sure, and you know exactly what that is. Now you may not get exactly what yeah. that is. But you know, if you want a Sam Elliott, then yeah. you're going to get a Sam Elliott yeah. type. You're not going to get Scott Baio. You know, yeah, you're not, not going to get Scott Baio if you want Sam Elliott. <laughs> exactly. So I got to talk to you. Unless somebody at the studio who's financing it wants Scott Baio. And that's, that happens all the time. Of course. I mean, that's just crazy. But now, now, now after you were you did, you did Clean and Sober, you did The Hidden. Now, after The Hidden, did people start recognizing you? Because that's, once again, that's sort of a cult following. Or now you probably get recognize more from that now because it, it's it's yeah. bigger now because college guys they put it on cable and they put it on ifc it's like 
and on, they put it on Halloween. Yeah. And it was one of those, I mean, and it was, it was, I mean, it was a good movie. It's like, I mean, I'm 51. I really hadn't seen a movie like that. And yeah. it was like, we were like, wow. Yeah. And we're like, and it was, it was like indie when the indie boom was happening, but it was like cool indie. It was, it like, was, it was really like cool. Hip, and it Plus wasn't like sex and rock and roll yeah, and violence. It, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like, you know, oh, Friday the 13th part nine, you know, no. it was like something different we had to see. That must've been great being a part of that. Though. Oh, Ferraris and, uh, and I got to shoot AK-47s and Steyrs. And, now, what's that like? Oh, it was amazing. They took me down to the gun club with a couple of retired cops, and we they taught me how to use these, uh, you know, I, I automatic rifles. I mean, it, you know, it was just amazing. Um, that was part of the excitement. And then the whole crazy wardrobe with the buttless dress and all that stuff. Plus, I had never... Um, I had never, certainly never stripped, nor uh, had I ever been naked in anything, obviously. <laughs> um, so luckily for me, I had kind of fudged during the audition, and I stuffed my bra with socks. So Jack Shoulder, the director, thought that I had huge breasts, and okay. I did not. It was very thin, and I had, like, no breasts, and he was very disappointed, but I was already hired. And so they built me prosthetic breasts into a t-shirt and I was very happy about that because I didn't have to take my top off so that that made me happy but then he got me back by putting in me in a g-string made out of dollar bills and he said that I had to go to strip joints to watch girls how to learn how to strip so I would go to, this was my homework I would go to the Aladdin mid-afternoon and I would sit in the back and I'd watch these afternoon girls and strip strip clubs in that year weren't like they are now no strip clubs and, are like and by the way that and... time of day believe me with it that time of day you get a real interesting crowd and, and it yeah you got the sticky beer smell and the and the stale cigarette smell and you've got guys that have been on there it was horrible i remember yeah at the time it was it was a really it was quite I'm an empath, so it was quite tragic. You know, you had one one gal there was an Olympic ex-Olympic skier. She was stripping because she was a single mom, and I was I was watching her, and you know, a couple girls were on drugs. You could tell, and um, then we had, we had a great choreographer, um, and you know, I just learned how to do it. But my first day of work, imagine I had I'd never done this, and I've got a strip in front of the crew, in my dance that I learned this little dance. It was mortifying to say the least, but I jumped right in and. Had a lot of fun with the guns, and Kyle McLaughlin was really lovely to work with. I th it was a great experience, and like I said, nowadays I get you know frat boys always coming up. You were in the hidden that and hexed that that uh, they always quote lines from that. But um, yeah, they, they've had a resurgence. And then years later, I saw a Denzel Washington film where it sort of was like the hidden. He was in New York, and every time he said so there was an alien that passed through people much yeah yeah, yeah kind of similar yeah it so was. I thought hey the hidden was kind of ahead of its time it was. It was a cool movie. It was rock and roll and crashing Ferraris and crazy stuff. And, you know, it, it was a, I thought it was pretty fun. Now, after that, you started, you got clean and sober, the movie, and you started working on a lot of things. Did a lot of TV. Now, did you get, you were getting more TV. Now, did you, did you feel a difference between TV and movie? What did you prefer when you were going back you know, and forth? I, I still, to this day, the only preference I have after doing um, some pr really, really heavy theater, I'm probably unlike any other actress around there who just readily admits theater bores the hell out of me. Um, I don't like doing the same show every night. I don't certainly don't like my one of my last big plays. I was bipolar and and I had to break down it twice a day. And you know it's hard work. It's just it's it's very and if you don't have the right audience and they don't get the play or whatever, it's it's very tedious to me. I like the immediacy and the change of television and film. Did I notice a difference between TV and film? Yeah. I mean, in a film, you had more time. You had more takes. I mean, in Clean and Sober, I mean, Glenn Gordon Caron would take 50 takes sometimes on, on one scene. And Clean and Sober was shot in a condominium complex called Chanticleer in my hometown of Cherry Hill. They had oh. Parts of it, I don't know. They might cite some yeah. idea, but it took... There Pennsylvania, was a, they did it in okay. a, re, a rehab center in Philadelphia. But the, actually, his apartment was in a condominium right near my high school. Oh, wow. Okay, so small sitting, world. We saw an article, we're like, oh my God, Michael Keaton's in Cherry Michael Hill. Whoa, you know. He was amazing <laughs> in that film. And I tell you, it was, there was, you know, Morgan Freeman was just really getting hot and, and getting all the respect from that he deserved from his early films. And... Uh, it was just really interesting working with two people who were so well known and they were so gracious and it was it was a really wonderful experience. Um, 
I had a great time on that film. And of course, it just, you know, there's a more languorous approach to it because you're not in a rush. Television right. is more, you know, you have to get the whole thing in usually seven working days. Um, the film, you have more time and you got time off. My part wasn't that big, so I had days off and it was it was luxurious, to say the least. Um, and then I did a lot of indie films and I learned the reality of, of you know, low budget filmmaking. In between, I just went from television to film. I never was, uh, it wasn't until Babylon 5 came around that I really had the discussion, the talk with my agent, because it was a commitment to five years after I got it. And I said to my agent, you know, I'm, I've got this kind of film career going, so should I do this? Should I commit to it? And she said, ah, it's not a Star Trek spinoff, so it's it'll never last because it's science fiction and it's so, not Star Trek. So you went in, you knew it was, their original plan was to make it for a few years. Five-year plan, always. And, and if and if it got canceled, then it got canceled. They yes, okay. they 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 wanted a five-year commitment. You had to sign a five-year contract. Now, what's and, that like? Because you were going, you were doing TV, you're doing independent movies, but you're you know as an actor, you must love the independent movies because it's 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 a, a good role, you know. And you're going back and forth, and then all of a sudden they're saying five. I mean, you know, you think about five years. Yeah, I mean, I think I was twenty-five. But you're, must, but you're a mature 25. I was you're a very like mature 40, 25. So maybe you were like a 40, 40 year old brain going yeah. saying, okay, you know what? Five years, then you know what? I can do anything I want when I'm 30 because I'm, I got sure. five years of TV. So, so you decided to take, did they come to you or did you have to audition or? Oh yeah. I auditioned for it. Um, I went in around noon on the first day uh, and they asked me to come back around a couple hours later to read with Jerry Doyle. And I said, great, wonderful. Um, and I went back at three and I booked it. It was that easy. It was just one day. There was no deliberations. There was no going into the studio. Normally, you have to test every other series I've ever done. You go in. That used to be just nerve-wracking. We used to have to go into the studio tests, and you have to make the deal and do the contract as if you already have the job. It's and then you go into the studio heads, and they yay or nay you. And I had been in that position before. This was far different. It was just a Joe Straczynski and John Copeland and Doug Netter in the room, and and that was it. They were the ones who made the decision. So. I, you know, and, I, and frankly, after reading the three scripts that they gave me, there was no question in my mind that I wanted to play Ivanova. I mean, she was just so well written, and so she wasn't, you know, the assistant or the person pushing the buttons in Galaxy Quest, the Sigourney right. Weaver character. And when I when I sat there when I looked at your IMDb, each year you got a promotion on that mm -hmm. show. You were went from I was like Lieutenant Commander. Yeah, that, well, that's cool though. That's great because that's like okay, you know, it's not like you're sitting there going. Okay, I'm going to be like in high school. I'm going to be the kid who's been a senior in high school for four years. You exactly. I mean? So you, you take this now. Now, when you read the script, did you think it was going to be very popular? Did you think it was going to make the five years? You weren't sure. I honestly knew nothing about science fiction. I never watched it as a kid. I didn't really read much except maybe a little Tolkien. You know, I I, I really did not know the world of science fiction at all. Um, I knew about classic Star Trek, but I certainly never watched it or anything. So I... I just knew what my agent told me, which was science fiction usually doesn't last. Back in those days, it wasn't respected. It wasn't the cool thing it is now. This is pre-Battlestar Galactica reboot. This is, you know, science fiction was considered cheesy and and um, and very a very specific genre and a specific group of fans. So, but for me, it was the quality of the writing. I thought the scripts were really well written and uh, the characters were very well developed. So that's why I I said yes and. You know, something that I am thrilled that I did because it's been, it was life changing and it was something I'm still very proud of. How was it life changing? Just because it was, it's, once again, science, science fiction fans are the most devout, devout and loyal. Yeah. And as I, you know, I've talked about with Morgan before and I've talked to people who've been on Star Trek mm -hmm. that once they see you and they like you, they like everything you do. I mean, they'll sit there and learn everything about you and f watch all your past work. More than that. I mean, so I mean, what was it like? I mean, does it, you said, you know, it was such a great experience. What made it such a great experience? A myriad of things. First of all, it took me around the world um, for conventions. I went to Australia a number of times, New Zealand, Germany, Paris, I mean, Spain, Amsterdam, you name it. I've been all over the place specifically for science fiction conventions, which I never would have done without Babylon 5. Second of all, the intense fan loyalty has allowed me to pursue projects that I never would have been able to, which is... I wrote a memoir um, called Babylon Confidential, which was number one on Amazon, probably based on the, the loyalty of my fans buying it. I've made five albums as a singer-songwriter, even though I can't sing, because they've been so supportive. And 
mo most important to me, they, f they really financed my documentary, One Little Pill, which uh, has saved already thousands of lives. So they're also an extremely kind group of people. When I came out with my uh, alcohol addiction in my late 30s, I wasn't judged, I wasn't made fun of, I wasn't eschewed or kicked aside. I was supported uh, enormously by my fan base. They encouraged me when I wrote the book. They encouraged me and financially supported uh, all of my social um, Kickstarter programs and Indiegogo programs. They've also managed to make it possible for us to have a physician outreach program with my nonprofit organization, the C3 Foundation, um, where we meet, reach about a half a million people now. We have C3 Europe as well. Um, we are now two years old and doing extraordinary well. I just got my drug and alcohol and solvent counseling degree, so um, I'm able to counsel people for free. This is all really, I could never have done this without my science fiction fan base, without my 130,000 people on Facebook, without, you know, combined probably 200,000 people between Twitter and all my eight Facebook pages and all that. You know, it's they have been extraordinary. They've gone above and beyond. Even when they're burnt out, they bought my memorabilia when I was trying to raise money to finish my film. I mean, they, you know, they've 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 just been amazing and supportive and loving. And I can't say enough good things about them. And I never would have met that group of people, that particular subset of genre fans, had I not done Babylon Five. And that's, you know, those are some of the reasons why I am enormously appreciative of that of that experience and having done that not to also mention the fact that i'm really really good friends with with the cast right and the crew i mean they're they're a, a terrific group of people i cannot wait for saturday where we're going to san diego comic-con you know it's yeah. funny you're going to comic-con and it's so funny because me and my ex-wife lived in san diego probably 18 years ago right in downtown i guess near the convention center and back then, Comic-Con was like nothing. Like you would sit there and it was, oh, you know, gosh. we'd look out because we lived in a loft a few blocks away from there. And it was, it was just a normal weekend. Now it's a zoo. Quarter million and, people I or mean, something. So now what's that like going to Comic-Con? I mean, because you go in on a Saturday and you're going to probably do a panel. Is that what you guys do? Or Yeah, I mean, I had gone there first. Um, I had I'd gone there with Disney, which was a class act all the way when I did the film Atlantis. And they took me down. And this is when they had the Aladdin uh, interactive uh ride where you put the little mask and the hands on and all that stuff and that was pretty cool um disney treated me like a prince princess i mean you go down there everything's organized you sign photos they have everything done for you they give you a car and driver i mean it's really really nice then i went with ben bella books for my book babylon confidential and i went down they had a booth at, at san diego comic-con and i signed for a few hours and that was also wonderful and organized but much more crowded than i had remembered so i got a little sort of claustrophobic i was at the time trying to meet um, graphic novel uh, publishers because my partner, Morgan Grant Buchanan, my writing partner, uh, and I um, were trying to get this book, uh, which originally was a graphic novel, published. So I just made this little walk from my booth down to like, you know, maybe, I don't know, 150 feet away. And it took me 20 minutes. I mean, just packed with people. And I got really, really kind of crazed about that. So I did not spend a lot of time. I, I did a little thing with Geek Nation, Claire Kramer, did a little interview, and then I just got the heck out of there. This year, um, I'm going to go down, and there's going to be uh, eight cast members from Babylon 5, Bill Moomy, Mira Furlon, Bruce Boxleitner, Jerry Doyle, Pat Tallman, Robin Atkin Downs, and myself. And we're all going to speak. It's called uh, Babylon with Babylon, okay. <laughs> the cast of Babylon. Um we're going to speak for probably an hour and change, and then we're going to sign for an hour, uh, and then we'll take some group pictures with the fans as well. So I'm really just going down for Saturday. I Like I said, I, I can't take the crowds, and also I have nothing else to promote yet. I'll probably go next year when Tor releases Wolf's Empire, the next book that Morgan and I have coming out next summer. So I'm hoping it'll be done in time to do San Diego again, because I'd like to go down with Tor. They're you know, great publishing house. I mean, it's great because you already have that in following and then people see, say anything, if people see a crowd, they go, who's that? And they go, oh, wait, we know. And then you probably get people who enjoyed The Hidden. Mm -hmm. So they sit there and say, oh, wait a second. Maniac Cop 2. Yeah. yeah it's I mean, another so, genre film I did I mean, that people love. I don't know why. But... It's a genre. People like genre. Yeah. Now, now the book, what made you decide to write the book Babylon Confidential? I really, um, I thought that I could really help a lot of people because I played uh, this heroic, you know, figure and I, 
I had a lot of people who looked up to me, kids and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, if I admit the, one of the beautiful things about Joe Straczynski's writing was the fallibility of the characters in Babylon Five, and the the fact that he can't that he did he he really conquered and and touched upon racism and and issues of sexuality and addiction. And I thought, you know, I could take one of two routes. I can hide the fact because I've never been drunk in public or, you know, maybe a couple conventions. But, you know, I never got a DUI or I I, I usually just stayed home when I had my issue. Um, And I can either just ignore it and treat it on my own or I can take this treatment that I found in 2009. That's the Sinclair method? The Sinclair method. Which is explain. The Sinclair method involves taking an opiate blocker. In this case, in America, it's called naltrexone, and it's been approved by the FDA since 1994 for the use of treating alcohol use disorder. And the issue is they, they prescribe it, I will say incorrectly, because I am an advocate against this. They they they. They prescribe it with abstinence in this country, and they tell you to take it in the morning. And and that is so wrong because you're blocking good endorphins from working out or making love or playing with your kids or animals or eating spicy food. You're blocking all the good endorphins if you take it. You need to target the addiction. And it's counterintuitive to tell somebody with a drinking issue to drink alcohol, but you have to engage in the behavior that you wish to stop. Alcoholism is a learned behavior. You have the genetic predisposition and you engage in the behavior and eventually your neuropathways actually change because of the large release of endorphins. This opiate blocker will block that endorphin rush and rewire your brain so that the neuropathways are not so pronounced anymore. Okay. It's basically called pharmacological extinction and it's a very well-known thing. It's, it's had over 120 peer-reviewed trials. It's been uh, in JAMA studies, uh, science, you know, I mean prestigious studies have proven that this treatment has a 78% long-term success rate. If you compare that to traditional treatment which has a 5 to 10% success rate. You can see the difference. And this you can do in the privacy of your own home. It's extremely inexpensive. The medication without insurance is between one and four dollars a pill. With insurance it can be as little as ten cents a pill. It's a generic uh, medicine so it's not and there's no big pharma company behind it which is why it's not as successful as a Viagra or anything like that. Um, it gets no publicity because it would also put a huge dent in the multi-billion dollar rehab industry which is why people haven't heard about it as well. A thousand dollars a day to drink wheatgrass and do Tai Chi and it does nothing for the biological addiction. This is the issue also is that everybody drinks for a different reason. Each addict is so different that I, in, in, in having dealt with thousands of them over the past six years, I can attest to the fact that everybody is different. I did not need psychotherapy because I wasn't drinking because I had a crummy childhood or I was going through any trauma or I tried psychotherapy. It had nothing to do with the fact I was drinking. I had alcoholism and addiction in my family. I engaged in the behavior and my, my addiction grew. I was a light drinker in my 20s and a normal drinker in my 30s, and then bam, it just hit me, okay. and I became a binge drinker. Um, and so in that regard, for me, I don't like taking medication. I don't like taking drugs. I don't even like taking aspirin. Anyone who knows me knows I get dental work without Novocaine. I hate drugs. That's 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 pretty yeah. crazy. No, but, but I, I, mean, I know you're saying no, that. No, I that, hate the feeling of being out of, of it. Yeah, that's I a hate of I hate pot. Drugs. I hate all that stuff. I don't like being out of it. Um, so for me to actually take a medication means that I exhausted everything else. I went to rehab. It did nothing for me. I went to psychotherapy. It did nothing for me. I tried electro thingy. I tried hypnotism. I tried diet, vitamin therapy. You name it, I've tried it. And nothing worked for me. And so when I found this in 2009, I was so thrilled about it that I decided to, I called Dr. Roy Escapa, who wrote the book, The Cure for Alcoholism, and I asked him what I could do to help raise awareness of this miraculous treatment. And he said, write a book. And that's why I wrote Babylon Confidential to get back to your question in a very long-winded way. No, no, because that's interesting. No, but that's great for the reason you did write it. Also, is to help others. Others, and that's the thing. It wasn't like I'm just going to write a book. You know, because you see so many books. Me, me, me. No, you no, know, no. I, you... I wasn't even in my four, like fifties. Why when, when I? I mean, I didn't even live my whole life. How dare I write a memoir? I wrote the memoir specifically because I knew I had some great Hollywood stories, so people might read it for the entertainment value. But I had an amazing, different kind of recovery story. My recovery is completely different than anybody you reads from AA or rehab or anything like that. I don't know anybody else who's ever written a book about going on the Sinclair method. Right. It, it's just totally unique. And I knew that it would help a lot of people. Now, was it was it hard to sit down and write? Because you're writing, you, as you said, you had a very supportive fan base. 
But when you're sitting there writing, you know, you're saying, I've had this problem. Is that hard at times? Is that hard for you to put the pen down? Or would you sit there and think and go, you know what? I'm helping a lot of people. So, you know what? They've helped me. They put me in a position where I can help. I can yeah. help others. I discussed it with my partner, Morgan, and, and I said, there's no way in hell that we have to, we can sugarcoat this or lie. I have to be honest about my, you know, being raped. I have to be honest about my brother's death. I have to be honest about, you know, I just have to be honest about my addiction. I have to show how ugly it was. And I have to, I have to show how vulnerable I was and how much it hurt my family and my friends and everything and, and how desperate I was and how alone I felt. Because if anybody who has walked in the shoes of an addict, whether you're a bulimic or, or whether you're a cocaine addict or a gambler or whatever, will immediately know when you're lying. Yeah, you, nobody sails through addiction, and and I I don't know anybody who says yeah I expected it when I started drinking I thought yeah I'm, I I I think being an alcoholic would be fun I mean when it happens to you it's shocking especially if you're a highly disciplined intelligent person you just you're, you're like well, right. wait who is this alien inside of me much like the hidden yeah so for me it was it was cathartic but it was also and I knew that it would be you know, some people would feel shame, and I thought, you know, why are we shamed? Nobody chooses this. Nobody chooses to become an you know, addict. It's funny you say that because my my girlfriend does. Uh, she speaks. She was a victim of a huge date rape case in Philadelphia. I mean, before Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Marsalis was the biggest date rapist. And it took her when we first started dating. We knew each other in college, but it took her a while to tell me, and because she wanted to make sure she knew me. And it's that that thing in my. And when when she told me, I said, like, I think it's great that you go and you talk to people yeah. and that's the thing people look and they give a shame to you know it's so funny if you're if you're an alcoholic people have the shame it's back back years ago if you did cocaine people had the shame but if you smoke pot that's okay oh I, oh pot's great hey, we're gonna legalize. I, I have nothing I'm, i think pot should be legalized and i you know but it's just so funny it's that thing even with the cosby thing i'm sort of got an argument with a guy on mm -hmm. facebook today because someone posted about cosby and he's like well you know, he didn't say he raped him. I'm like, dude, are you that stupid? It's like, it's so obvious. And he's like, well, what about Ben Rotzlenberger? I said, well, he raped too. Cosby raped many more. But it's people have that that stigmatism yeah. that it's someone is wrong. Yeah. You know, you hear like with these athletes, you know, when they say, oh, oh, well, the girl went to his room. I did stand up comedy in a road from 88 to 95. Okay. And I had full hair and I was a handsome looking guy. And you know what? I would, after a show, I was single. I'd get a girl to my room. But when she said, did she I say no, you said, I'd stop. Yeah. yeah. Did I want, oh yeah, I want, that's why she's coming up. But once they said no, no. and I never, ex I mean, I never expected it. And that's the thing. It's with the shaming. It's so weird. It's like with alcoholism, it's such a shame. It's like, no, you know, it is a disease yeah. and people don't get are, that. Are diabetics shamed because right. they ate a bunch of crap food or are, yeah. are, are, are smokers shamed because they got lung cancer? Right. I, I know. mean, you know, and, and also the, 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 you know, the thing is, is would a doctor say to a diabetic, you know what, I'm not going to give you insulin because I don't believe in it. Right. I'm going to send you to meetings to talk about your food habits. That's BS. So what, they, what do they do? They send you to a meeting. What if you're agnostic or atheist, you know, and you have to go to a meeting and talk about God the whole time? And it doesn't do anything for the biological addiction. I know AA helps a lot of people. That's a certain type of person that responds well to it, and that's wonderful. I don't care if you take pineapples and get sober. I don't care how you do it. Do it. Right. But all I'm saying is, is that when doctors deny people this simple, effective, FDA-approved medication, it drives me crazy because they wouldn't do it in any other medical circumstances. They wouldn't deny somebody who's dying of their disease if you want to go with a disease model or learned behavior model, whatever, it's killing them and they won't give them the little pill because they don't believe it or they don't understand pharmacological extinction. And I'm like, well, go back to, you know, take a few classes in it or watch my movie. That's why we're sending my documentary all over the United States right now. Now, how did you decide to make the movie? And because you well, sat there, you had written a book. Yeah, that was the next step was I said, you know, the book has reached number one. It's reached some people. We've sold thousands of copies, but it's not enough. It's a visual society. So I went back to Roy. And at this time, Dr. Sinclair was still alive. And I, and I talked to them and and uh, they said, maybe you should make a film. And I made a documentary, and it's called One Little Pill, and it's at onelittlepillmovie.com if anybody wants to look it up. Um, all of the proceeds from renting it or buying goes back to my nonprofit foundation, the C3 Foundation. And by the way, we do everything for free. I counsel people for free. Um, we provide literature and information. We have a find a physician page where you can find doctors who are 
uh, amiable to to the Sinclair method and also pharmacies that will give you the prescription with no prescription. They'll give you the medication with no prescription, excuse me, um, and ship it to you. So there's no excuse not to go on the Sinclair method if you're having an issue. And, and you know, it, it, all the emails that go there go directly to me. I, I work with people every day. How did you tackle doing a documentary? Because documentaries seem like there's so much work. You're from a movie background where, you know, you go onto the set, you, you mm -hmm. go in your trailer, you can act, TV, the same thing. Whenever you see documentaries, there's so much work involved. And I had a footage and footage yeah. and footage and editing. And what do I do here? So where do you start step one? Do you sit there and go, I mean, how do you look at it and go, what the well, hell am I going to do? I had a phenomenal director, producer, Adam Schomer, and a phenomenal Emmy award-winning editor, Barry Rubino. And I, without those two gentlemen, I, I would have been completely lost. I, I mean, Adam makes beautiful films and, um, I had seen his film, The Highest Pass, and I was introduced to him through a mutual friend and I immediately loved him. He's a calm yoga doing, you know, just a beautiful man. And, um, we got along great and he had everything organized. I mean, he made my job easy. All I really had to do was provide a few, uh, uh, some footage that I shot in Finland with Dr. Sinclair and went to England and shot a bunch of footage there. And he organized everything in the United States and went by himself to Michigan and Detroit, I mean, to uh, Chicago and Detroit. And, um, you know, he just had everything in his head. And then Barry edited it beautifully. We worked on it. We we sat in the editing room for about four times and they worked together and separately. And, and boom, we had a beautiful film. And thanks once again to the sci-fi fans who who helped me raise the money to make it. So it's, we actually just released it in a fully produced DVD. So it's also on Vimeo and VHX if you ever want to watch it. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful film. We have a company right now who's trying to get um, get it released in America on television stations. We actually aired in Finland okay. about a dozen times uh, on YLE, which is their sort of uh, PBS kind of station there. So it's attracted a lot of attention and it's saved lives already. So it's great. That's very cool. Now I want to ask you something totally off subject. Yes. About Claudia Khan. I want to hear about that. That was in the UK, I believe. Why did you pick the UK? Because that's, I mean, you, and you already said you get claustrophobic at some of these things. Yeah. So how did you come up with that idea? Oh, well, I lived in England for many, many years. I actually just sold my flat uh, last year. What and made I, you move to England? I was burnt out on Hollywood, and I was offered a TV series by a fellow named Andrew Diamond, and that TV series was Star Hike. It was a sci-fi comedy. And I just wanted a change in life. I was just burnt out. I'd been in L.A. since I was 16 years old. I was 38 or something, I think. Um, and he said, well, if you're burnt out, you want to star on this little little TV series I've got? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I got there, and I've always been an Anglophile, and I've always loved England, and I just fell back in love with it. So I lived in Bath and Bristol, and I moved to London, and I sold my house in Los Feliz, and I bought a flat in Notting Hill, and I... I embraced it. I got some t television series there and stuff, and I loved it. So when it came time to do ClaudiaCon, I thought I had just gone to a bunch of um, conventions by some conventioneers whose name I won't mention, but I was extremely ticked off because they had all these signs up next to the actor saying, no touching, no taking pictures, no video, no this, no that, no shaking hands, no personalization on the photos. And I'm thinking, what the heck? Why bother? Right. Why are we here if we're not here to make a connection with the fan and, and personalize it and shake their hand, give them a hug, take a selfie, whatever. That's why we're there. I mean, I just, I was so insulted on behalf of the fans. And so I broke all the rules. I said, you know, Basically, I ripped my sign down that they had stuck on my booth, and I just did everything that I normally do, which is go around, take pictures, do all that stuff. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to throw my own convention where it's total access all the time. And I knew it wouldn't be claustrophobic because that we're talking about Comic-Con is, is in the league of only Comic-Con and Dragon-Con and maybe the one FedCon in Germany. But those Comic-Con is a, an animal of itself. That's every anybody would get claustrophobic there so I just wanted to make a convention as a thank you to the fans unfortunately it happened uh, the same weekend as the riots in London and the giant bicycle race which we had no idea was going right through where we were where we were having it and nobody uh, we had about a third of the people cancel because of the riots in London even though we were holding it at Heathrow Airport where there was no violence whatsoever you know we hear I know, they, so everyone that was flying in canceled now the cooking show Yes. Now, okay, are you are you a big, have you been a big cook all your life? or, or yeah. Now, what kind of, okay, how did the cooking show come about? And well, what kind of food, what kind of food do you cook? 
I cook everything, but I've always wanted to do a cooking show. So right now we're shooting a couple of episodes and then we're going to try and sell it. Um, and it's uh, it's a historically based cooking show. So cooking a lot of stuff from first century AD biblical foods and that part of the Middle East and Mediterranean diet. Um, but with little stories and vignettes, it's not Christian, Catholic or Judaic. It's it's a mixture of everything. I quote the Torah and that, you know, it's, it's a spiritual show. Um, and, uh, has a lot of life's lessons about, about, you know, the bee, the honeybee issue right now, we're interviewing a beekeeper and we're talking cheese and ecological issues and stuff without being preachy, of course, just with entertaining, because a lot of things that I see that I miss, for instance, like with Floyd on food and the two fat ladies, I loved learning things and the fact that they went to historical places and they went to food markets and you learned something. Nowadays, it's just a celebrity talking into the camera about what they're cooking, they're, but they're not explaining what the ingredients, the symbolism or anything behind it. They're just saying, this is a quarter cup of sugar. You know, I, I, I want more as a viewer. So I decided to make the cooking show that if I was watching a cooking show, I would want to watch. So I'm pretty excited about it. We're going to shoot it next week and we'll see what happens. What's it going to be called? Sunday Suppers with Claudia. So, okay. And so like, what are some of the dishes you're going to make? I'm making uh, lamb shanks with lentils, which feature heavily. Lamb? Are you a lamb fan? Yeah. I love lamb. I love lamb. I'm, lamb gets sort of a bad rap. Yeah. Like people are like, oh, it's too gamey. I'm like, how is it gamey? It's no, never it's gamey. Not gamey. It's not so gamey at all. You get it medium rare oh, and it's, it's great. gorgeous. Or asabuco is a big yeah, favorite Yeah, asabuco. I'm making uh, also a poultry dish. I'm making um, a lot of fig dishes and using honey. I'm doing... Um, uh, an apple dish. I'm do, I'm doing uh you know, just good Sunday. Like if you were having a good Sunday meal, what would you expect? Something that's hearty but healthy, but also fun with desserts and homemade ice cream and stuff like that. That's like a sit down talking meal, which I miss from being a kid. I remember every Sunday we would have people over. We invited strangers. We invited my soccer coach. We invited the local priest, whatever. My godparents used to come to dinner, and we would have, and my brother's friends, and we would have a bunch of people sit down and have wine and a meal, and and it would last a few hours, and we'd dress for it, and we'd wash up and put on fancy clothes and everything, and it was really lovely, and I I miss that. I miss I I miss I think it's important to take the time to be with your friends and family, and to actually have that moment of connection because we're all just staring at a cell phone and right. no cell phones allowed at, at Claudia's table. Well, <laughs> well, that's so funny. You're right. Cause I know, I know when we were little, you know, on a holiday or growing up on a holiday, especially after dinner, we'd be sitting at the dinner table for like an hour and a half yeah. and just talk. And I, my, I'd always try to talk and my older brother would tell me to be quiet. My mom would say, let him talk. And he's like, Oh, whatever he doesn't, yeah, exactly. what do you say? It's not important. What is not important? And I'm talk like, about evil Knievel. And what did we have? Monty Python. We would yeah. do jokes and we do imitations and we do whatever was on Saturday night live. We would do the skits and yeah, everything. Exactly. And we would all sit around laughing and, or we'd talk about school or, you know, our parents, my dad traveled a lot. So he'd tell us where he was just had been and what was famous in that particular state and things like that. And, you know, my, both my parents worked, so they had stories. My mom worked in Wilton, Connecticut, and Betty Davis was one of her clients. So, you know, we have – it was just fun, and, and, you know, everybody brought something to the table, literally. Now, you'd mentioned you might be working on a new, a new book. Is that what you said? We have a new book coming out called Wolf's Empire. And now what's that about? Wolf's Empire is based uh, – it's a, it's a really kick-butt female protagonist lead named Akala, and it's a, based in a – uh, it's it's sci-fi military. It's based in a Rome that never fell. So it's basically Romans in space, which is you know they've gone and and broadened out all the way through the galaxy. So you've got air chariots and, but you still have every human is Roman. So but you have aliens as well. So it's um it's it's a it's a great epic. I would say it's kind of like a cross between Hunger Games and Game of Thrones. It's it's epic. And you'd write that with your writing partner, Morgan Grant. Buchanan, yes. And now Morgan wrote the first book with you too, though, the the Babylon Confidential. Yeah. yeah, he stuck with me. So what's it, <laughs> what's it like going from such a different writing style? I mean, because they're they're yeah. two so different. I mean, this totally. is like okay, we know what happened. You have you have yeah, I just have, did Skype you, sessions and then we translated and then yeah. But exactly. for this, you're going totally Creating creative. So how did how did you work that out? Well, like I mentioned earlier, it was based on the graphic book that that the graphic novel that was. Akala's world and at that point it was sort of a uh, she was you know it was all kind of spelled out but from that particular project to where we are now I mean we had artist renditions and it was you know it's like a comic book almost you just have little bubbles right. and there's it's kind of basic but there was a story um, with 
aliens and so forth that we are still sort of utilizing in this particular um, manifestation of the book. But it's changed enormously, obviously. And also we were writing it as a YA novel, and now we switched it up to adult. So it's 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 changed a lot. She starts out in her teens, but she's going to. It's we we're hoping for four books. All, all it's okay. a series. Of well, that's books. smart. Now with all this, the writing and the documentary and the singing and the Comic Con and nonprofit, <laughs> do you have time to act anymore? I mean, is there something that you put in the back burner a little bit just because you're so busy? I mean, how do you juggle the schedule? You know, I saw dirty. You saw I dirty. I saw Don? you in that. Yeah, yeah. I know, I, but I, I'm saying I just saying, did Cosmos, uh, which is a sci-fi uh, pilot. I did that a little bit ago. Um, I I have time if somebody asks me to act. It's just you know I I to tell you the truth I I get very few auditions nowadays and I'm not gonna sit there and what am I gonna do bug my agents I mean it's it, it is what it is you know I do a lot of voiceover work okay and that's very I I do um I, a lot of voiceover work I'm in Guild Wars I'm in Starcraft I'm in um, Skyrim and all the bonus features and everything so I usually I usually work on I mean, I've done a lot of games, so my voiceover work is a couple times a month at least, and that satisfies me creatively in some way, and also the cooking helps me creatively, and the writing helps me creatively. So it's and see if you ever make a, a cooking uh, CD, you have the voice for it, and you're set. See, you're already set. Now we have a few minutes left. Uh, tell us more. Uh, we have like two or three minutes left. Tell more about the uh, your nonprofit. My what? Oh, my nonprofit. So the C3 Foundation was, um, I opened it two years ago to help get people information about the Sinclair Method, a.k.a. pharmacological extinction, to allow them a place where they could find everything they need. They've, I've made videos explaining the process of it. There's a tr translation of the cure for alcoholism into Spanish. A few of the pages are translated into German, French. Um, we have uh, access to to doctors, like I said, on the Find a Physician page. There's links to the clinical trials. So if their doctor says, no, I'm not going to give you that pill, there's also know your rights, patients' rights for, throughout each state are different. So all of that information is there. I want it to, to be like a one-stop shopping thing. So anybody with any issue with alcohol, whether it's a family, friend, loved one, whatever, or the person themselves, can go to my website, which is www.c3foundation.org. Just Google Claudia Christian C3 Foundation and you'll find it. Um, and they can find everything they need there. And and they can also, like I said, email me and I will personally coach them. And through the entire process, I'll even call their mom or dad. I do, I've done this a million times. Really? So oh, yeah. I Skype with them. I... I, I talk to their parents or their or their loved ones. So you're very hands-on. You you started you you got this involved and, and you stay involved with. It. You're not one of those people who goes I'm gonna do this and then they disappear. This you're is very... for the rest of my life. Okay. No no I'm I'm gonna be doing the C3 Foundation for the rest of my life. It is my raison d'être as they say the reason to get up my reason to be. All I'm praying for every single day is a big fat government grant so we can actually afford to do more <laughs> so we can lobby congress so that we can lobby the FB, fda so that we can get people the treatment that they deserve we can open up clinics um all around the nation with sinclair method just spread awareness you know i mean i mean you know it's funny because i keep my eye on a lot of stuff but mm -hmm. nobody lot, knows about this know about it. yeah and and you know and especially in hollywood their alcohol will trip uh yeah. AA meetings are so huge in in, uh, in especially in Hollywood. Yeah, but, and, uh, and people it's a revolving door. People keep going back right. and back into rehab, back and back. Well, why are they relapsing? Because it doesn't necessarily work. It doesn't work on the biological addiction. And by the way, naltrexone also works for porn addiction, gambling, and opiate addiction. Okay. No, because you have to watch. When I was in the hospital a few years ago, and I used to smoke cigarettes, but for me, when I got out, I said, hey, you don't want me to live or do I want to die? I said, you know what? I want to live, and I just said, I can't smoke anymore. Eight percent of the population can quit anything on their own. Uh, but that's and it's very small. And for me, I wouldn't have never quit if I wasn't in a hospital. I would have been if it wasn't for a mm -hmm. few days. It's a thing. You sit there. And My you... dad had one bad hangover and he never drank again. See, that's, that's in his forties. That's good. Some people can do that. I myself needed a pill, one little pill. Well, it worked. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you and, so much. And give all, give all your info, your Twitter and all that. Give it all. Claudia lives. Is my Twitter, um, ClaudiaChristian.net is my website. Um, I'm on Facebook. The, my fan page is the one to go to. Um, uh, OneLittlePillMovie.com or OneLittlePillFilm.com. Both of them will get you to my movie and the C3Foundation.org. And those are uh, that's any place you can you know go do you support tweet, it. Do you tweet a lot? Uh, yeah, every day. And also we have a tweet. Uh, we have a Twitter account through our other endeavors as well. C3Foundation, One Little Pill. And, yeah. 
I have a lot of accounts. Okay, well, you follow her, people. Follow her. Follow her on Twitter. Go, Claudia Liz. Thank follow God her. for my social media girl, Jenny Williamson. Thank exactly. you, Jenny. There you go. <laughs> and follow me on Twitter, people, at Cooper Talk. I'm always tweeting jokes. I'm tweeting good stuff. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, you can uh, check out my website, coopertalk.net, where I have over 390 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Also, this Saturday uh, at 8 o'clock at Muse on 8th, it's right on the brand 8th, I'm in. I'm doing in the Alex Stein storytelling show. I don't really go on stage much at all anymore, but I'll be telling a nice little 10-minute story. So come out and check that out. And also, don't forget StopTheSalt.com, my website. Go buy my cookbook. 120 recipes. Very easy to make. Not a lot of ingredients. No pictures to imitate you. And it's just a. It's a good cookbook. It's all low sodium. When I have my health problem, I change my eating habits. So go there. Don't buy it through Amazon. Don't buy it through Barnes Noble. Buy it through StopTheSalt.com because I'll sign it and I make more money. So follow at Claudia Lives. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Keep listening. It's coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.